Today's passage is on John, it's from John 2.23 to John 3.21. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That's the verses for today. Thank you, everyone. Great to see you this morning. Uh, I've I got to start by saying it, it, it was for me a great honour to be given uh, this chapter to preach on. I mean, 
John 3.16 surely has to be the best known verse in the Bible. And, uh, and I, I, I think of uh, Spider-Man, what does he say? Uh, with uh, with uh, a great verse comes great responsibility, uh, something like that. But coming a, a, into preaching this passage... I felt a responsibility to be, to be faithful and to communicate what John was trying to communicate to the first hearers. And I did run into a problem, and I want to share that with you this morning. So before we start, can we just all pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've come together this morning. We, we pray, Lord, that your spirit will be with us. We pray, Lord, that you'll, you'll open our ears and that you'll open our heart to your word and that you will speak to us. Lord, that you will continue to, to transform us and bring us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name. Now, the first image up there on the screen, coming up, an odd one to start uh, a, a talk with. And, uh, and I'm sure most of you recognise this character. Yes? Yes? No? Okay. If, ever, <laughs> if you've seen the movies, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings... This character is Gollum. And it might seem to be impolite to say this image causes me to think of my mother-in-law. <laughs> Gloria, will you be listening to this? I have asked my mother-in-law, Gloria, for permission to, to, to bring her into the, this morning's talk. Uh, because it's not appearances that makes me think of my mother-in-law. It's a conversation that we had had uh, a few years back now. And uh, Janet and I were in Sydney, we, we were staying with Gloria and uh, we were going to go and see one of the Lord of the Rings movies. I'm not sure, it, it, it possibly was The Hobbit. And when we told Gloria that we were going to go see the movie, oh, she, she lit up. She shared with us her first time of reading The Hobbit and, and The Lord of the Rings and the, the wonder that she felt when she read it. And of course, being the most considerate of son-in-laws, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to invite the old girl to come along? And so I did. I said, Gloria, would you, would you like to join us? Well, <laughs> the, the whole mood just changed. No thanks was her menacing answer, and her mood suddenly darkened. <laughs> I, I should have taken the hint and, and just say, suit yourself and, and backed out of the room, but no, I, I took the bait. I said, oh, why not? She just glared at me and she seemed to grow in size and I was just shrinking away. She said to me, I have a clear image in my mind of what Gollum looks like. I don't want some movie to rob me of that. Her point's a good one. Once we are given a picture, it's hard to read the story any other way. So that's not a bad thing if it's, if it's the right picture, but if it's the wrong picture, it can really misshape a story. Now, I want to give you one other example, because last week I saw a Sherlock Holmes movie. It was called Without a Clue. And in this movie, Dr. Watson is played by Ben Kingsley. Uh, Dr. Watson, though, is the brilliant detective while Sherlock Holmes, who is played by Michael Caine, is his bumbling sidekick, 
who somehow manages to, to fool the press to believe that he was the brains behind the outfit and he gets all the accolades, while the truly brilliant Dr. Watson misses out. Now, if that was my one and only picture of a Sherlock Holmes story, a Sherlock Holmes movie, then the next time I saw a Sherlock Holmes movie, I would have serious problems. I, I'd be disillusioned. I, I wouldn't be able to understand why in this movie Sherlock Holmes is the, the brilliant detective and Holmes is the sidekick. Well, that's the experience I had when preparing this message because I had a certain picture of Nicodemus and the picture I had of Nicodemus was as a genuine seeker of the truth, an earnest man who wanted to, to find God and was genuinely inquiring of Jesus. And he only visited Jesus at night because he needed to get around these people that were going to ridicule him and, and, uh, and make him feel ridiculous. He wanted to avoid their judgment. Does anyone else, has anyone else had that sort of picture of Nicodemus? Okay, I'm, I'm alone. <laughs> oh, there's a couple because when I read my old commentaries, that's the picture that's, that's sort of portrayed. Um, and in this picture, we admire Nicodemus for somehow overcoming his fear. Sure, he does it at night, but he still overcomes his fear to, to approach Jesus. But where I get disoriented if I have that picture of Nicodemus is with Jesus' reply. Um, his reply seems somehow harsh and, and even condescending uh, and, and not the way that you should be speaking to a, an earnest speaker, a seeker of the truth. Uh, were I to continue on this path, I'd, I think I'd find myself having to try to justify Jesus' uh, actions. And, uh, and I, I just felt very uneasy of, about that. I believe when when you look a bit further at uh, what John's told us, that we do see that Jesus is the hero. Nicodemus is actually the villain, but he's also the victim, the damsel in distress, if you like. So I want to give you a, a different picture using the paint that, that John's provided. And uh, on the screen is kind of the outline that I'm going to follow, the plot. I'm going to look at the, the duplicity of, of humanity uh, that Jesus is, is completely aware of. We're going to look at Nicodemus as an example, a wolf in sheep's clothing uh, whose intentions are concealed. And then we're going to look how Jesus approaches this person, how he exposes Nicodemus uh, and shows that he has no influence, no power and it's only God that can change him. In the same way, we're going to see how humanity is also in need of being exposed and is equally lost. And finally, we're going to see that the only hope for Nicodemus and, and all of humanity is to look to Jesus. Okay, so I feel like giving you this outline. I'm going to jump into it now and uh, just think back to this and hopefully I won't confuse you too much. So the duplicity of humanity. Now, in between uh, our story about Nicodemus and uh, what Steve spoke about last week, Jesus 
at the wedding turning water into wine is another story. And it's a story where Jesus goes into the temple and he clears out the traders and he clears out the livestock. And the response he gets is that the Jewish people come up and say to him, on what authority are you doing this? Where's your authority? And Jesus gives a very cryptic answer. He talks about how he will knock the temple down, he will rebuild it in three days. And the story ends with John telling us that the disciples remembered this and that when Jesus was resurrected, they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, to my mind, that's the end. That's the end of the story in the temple. But we have another two verses that are added on at the end of chapter 2. And these couple of verses, they work like a bit of a hinge because they do feed into the story of the temple, but they also feed into our story. So let's look at those two. I should mention, it, it does become quite distracting when we see chapters, numbers and, and, and verses because we think, well, no, Paul, the, this is clearly the start of chapter 3 is the start of the story. Can I just tell you that when, when John wrote his gospel... There were no chapter numbers, there were no verses. They were added much, much later and I'm really thankful that they are because I can give you a chapter number and verse and we can all turn and be reading from the same page. But occasionally they do get in the way of us reading a story and I think this is is such an occasion. So John tells us at the end of chapter 2, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Can you see the duplicity there in people? They believed, yet they remained untrusted by Jesus because he knew them. He knew what they were like. When we jump into chapter 3, there's there's a couple uh, more verses that talk specifically about people. Verse 11 adds that people do not accept God's testimony. And in verse 19, we're told that people love darkness instead of light. It would be an odd story indeed if John is portraying humanity so negatively and then claims this story is about a man that is the exception to the rule. Now, Nicodemus is portrayed as a villain, evil, untrusting and untrustworthy. And Jesus is alert to his schemes. So let's read on. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know, we know. Rather than being in fear of the Pharisees, or the Jewish ruling council, Nicodemus is their spokesperson. He calls Jesus rabbi. Now, when you read that, you think, oh, isn't that nice? He's, he's acknowledging Jesus. But Nicodemus is, is also a rabbi. And Nicodemus may think he's complimenting Jesus, approaching him as an equal. But of course, we know that Jesus is far superior to, to any rabbi. He goes on, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus cuts him off there, but 
if he was allowed to keep speaking, I suspect he would say something like this. We, the Sanhedrin and Pharisees, we also speak on behalf of God. And we've noticed that you're making some rookie mistakes. I mean, really, Jesus, that thing at the temple yesterday didn't do you any good. But the good news, Jesus, is that my friends and I, we've been talking about you and we've agreed to take you under our wing. We're here, we're going to guide you, it's all going to work out great for you. The reason I'm adding that is that that's what happens in politics. It doesn't say it here, but the people of the time, they knew what politicians were like. They knew what the Jewish council were like. They knew what the Pharisees were like. They wanted to keep power. And so what happens when a political party sees someone on the outside that's gaining influence and threatening their authority? What do they do? They go to the person and ask them to come and join their party on the pretense that if you do this, we'll actually help your mission. With the power of the party, we can get things done far quicker. quicker. Um, it'll be all good for you. But what in fact happens is they effectively muzzle that person. From that time on, they feel they have to toe the party line. And this is also what happened when Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. You remember that story from, from the other Gospels? It's as if Satan's saying, Jesus, look, if you just submit to my control, to my authority, just bow down to me, it's no big deal, but you'll get what you desire sooner and without pain. It's a win-win. The only difference between the wilderness story and the temptation and our story is that old silver tongue is speaking through Nicodemus. Jesus isn't fooled. He sees Nicodemus as a villain, but he also sees him as a victim that is in need of rescue. And this picture of, of one person as being both villain and victim is true of every person. It's true of us. The great news is that Jesus desires to expose our sin and set us free. And we see this when we flip to the end of our reading, to, to, to verse 20 and 21. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But everyone who lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. John loves this metaphor of night and day, of, of, of darkness and light. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the darkness, believing his intent is hidden. As we've seen, Jesus already knows the heart of all people and he knows the heart of Nicodemus. Nothing, nothing is hidden from him. What Jesus does in the rest of the story is to forcefully expose Nicodemus, the villain, to the light. And then he invites Nicodemus, the victim, to come into the light, that he may, may be freed to know the truth and to know God. So let's look at how Jesus deals with Nicodemus, the villain. In verse 3, Jesus replies, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So Nicodemus has been speaking, he's been saying how good you are, Jesus, and, and here he's been cut off. And Jesus takes control of the conversation. He changes the direction and catches Nicodemus off guard. 
He tells Nicodemus that he cannot know the kingdom of God because he has not been born from above. He adds in verse 13 that he alone knows heaven because he has come from above. Now some of you may have noticed that, uh, that I've, I've done something a little bit shifty there. I've changed born again to born from above. Well, it's not actually that shifty. The word that has been translated again is anothen in Greek. And it means again and from above. It's got this, this dual meaning. And this word play is really important to the story. But without an English equivalent that uh, carries these two meanings, the translators uh, had to choose one or the other. And I suspect they chose again, so Nicodemus's response didn't seem completely crazy. I mean, if Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born from above, why does Nicodemus start talking about his mother? <laughs> it just doesn't work. It sort of works when he uses born again. And I see Nicodemus at jumping to the again meaning of anothen because it gives him hope that it is something he has done once he can do again. That makes sense, doesn't it? If, if you have to do something again, oh, well, I've already accomplished it once. Surely I can do it again. It allows Nicodemus to keep control until he starts really thinking about what Jesus has proposed and, and his thoughts spill out into his words. How can someone be born when they're old? How can I do this? He asks. Surely I can't enter a second time into my mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus desperately wants to keep control of his destiny and for many of us who are even followers of Christ, our biggest concern is that we have lost control of our destiny but let's get real Nicodemus what control or active participation does a baby have in their birth mothers what do you reckon absolutely none birth comes through labor the pain and suffering of their mothers not the baby Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. If you like, Jesus is saying the same thing again in, in different words. Now when I was a new Christian, that, I, I have to go back to the 1980s, some of you might, uh, might remember that era, but this per verse was pictured to me as being all about baptism. Water baptism, baptism in the Spirit neither of which are mentioned here. Now you've got to think about what Nicodemus knows and he'd be more familiar with uh, water as a symbol of ritual purification. And then also in the context of John, in the very next chapter, Jesus offers himself to the Samaritan woman as the source of living water. I think what Jesus is doing is he's pointing here to himself and the Holy Spirit as the only way for someone to be born from above, to enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, they were confident that uh, their moral life and their pious devotion granted them access to the kingdom of God. 
So when Jesus is saying this, he's, he's telling Nicodemus that nothing he has done so far counts. And becoming more moral or more religious won't help. No matter how good you are, Nicodemus, no matter how pulled together you are, you must be born from above. Now, I've pinched this from Tim Keller because he, he pulled out the opposite of this. And he says the reverse is also true. No matter how messed up you are, no matter how broken you are, you can be born from above. Isn't that great news? Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by my, my saying, you must be born from above. The flesh cannot choose to become spiritual, nor can it direct the Holy Spirit, as we read in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Do you know when I read this, I, my, my thoughts went immediately to Ecclesiastes. It's a funny book, Ecclesiastes, and, uh, but I, I, I get drawn to it. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. You just can't catch the Holy Spirit. <laughs> We don't get to program the way the, the Spirit works. God has the freedom to work in the way and along the timeline that he chooses. As people that are born from above, we relinquish control of our lives to God. We submit to the Spirit's leading, or we should. Nicodemus just can't comprehend this. He says, how can this be? As a Pharisee, as a member of the ruling party, he has defined the way others are to live. He is one of those who decides what's right and what's wrong. And he determines who's in and who's out. Things have been, become so corrupt for so long in the, the, the religious leadership that they can no longer fathom what a true theocracy where God guides the individuals looks like. Though their role as priests uh, and the role of the temple is to, to bring people into to God's presence, but it's been lost. Jesus responds, though, you are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? Now, I doubt that uh, our knowledge here of the Old Testament would, would uh, hold a candle to, to that of a, of a Pharisee. Yet most of us would recall the vision given in Ezekiel of the Valley of Dry Bones that come to life. Do we remember that? If not, read Ezekiel 37. It's a great story. We've got to do it in kids' church sometime um, uh, because it just gives you such a vision. We know that. Nicodemus would know that too. And this vision is in the context of the chapter before, Ezekiel 36. Let's read a few verses. You'll, you'll probably recognise this also. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Salvation in the Old Testament clearly involved a new birth, receiving a new heart and being delivered from the power of sin. And this is really standard prophetic new creation stuff that should be familiar to every Pharisee. Jesus is saying, don't be amazed that I say you must be born from above. It's in your Bible, Nicodemus. You should know it. Next we move on to to, uh, from Nicodemus to, to humanity being exposed. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. Now at the start of the talk, I pointed out that, uh, that Nicodemus used the word we, uh, that it revealed him as the, the spokesman for the Jewish council and the Pharisees. Now Jesus is using the word we. Who could he be talking about? Who could he be talking about? Well, well I'll, I'll cut to the chase and, and tell you what I reckon. I reckon he's talking about the big three. I think he's referring to the Father, himself and the Holy Spirit. And think about it. If that's the case, he's saying to Nicodemus, you want to entice me to join the Jewish ruling council? I'm already in the creation ruling council. Mate, you need to join me. In this verse, Jesus is describing the sin that has plagued humanity since the fall. It's the refusal to trust God. In verse 12, Jesus speaks of his frustration in trying to get this message across. But he gives it another go in verses 14 to 15. It reads, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now Jesus, I've got to say, I have preached on this before because I'm a a reptile keeper and there's nothing like having an excuse to bring a snake along and and, uh, get people's attention. I haven't done it today because I want you to be focused on the text. And Jesus draws this story from Numbers 21. Another thing, another story that Nicodemus would know well. In this story, the people were grumbling against God. And we read, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then anyone, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. In sharing this earthly story, Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand that his current ways of living actually displease God and that he is the subject of God's judgment. 
Of course, Nicodemus couldn't yet understand the meaning of the Son of Man being lifted up. However, it's no coincidence that we read about Nicodemus later and uh, we see he plays a part at the crucifixion. But for us, this phrase has a double meaning. It refers to both Jesus being lifted up and dying on the cross, but it also brings to our mind Jesus being lifted up at his resurrection and exalted to glory in heaven. Jesus really wants Nicodemus to see the solution that God has provided. All that is required in the snake bite story is that those men look at the, the bronze snake. And all that is required of Nicodemus is to look to Jesus. Verse 15 here that we've just read is where I believe John concludes the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, when you look yourself in, in, in other Bibles, they believe that Jesus just then continues along in a, in a monologue. I think John takes over at this point and explains what this, this story means to us, what the challenge is for us. And we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus had been explaining to Nicodemus God's plan for salvation and how we have to be born from above to enter into heaven. Now John shares with us the inspiration and method God's, uh, and, uh, <laughs> God's motive to, to save us. The inspiration is that God loves us. Evil, untrusting unworthy us God loves us what does he do he gives Jesus who takes the judgment we deserve and frees us from condemnation how do we appropriate that for ourselves by working harder being more moral being more spiritual no nah, no way looking to ourselves got us in the mud, continuing to look to ourselves just sinks us deeper into the mud. The only thing we need to do is look to Jesus. John is clear. God loves us. He sent Jesus to save us. Uh, but the only way we can be saved and experience God's love is if we choose to believe and simply look to Jesus. I read this wonderful story and I'd, I'd like to share it with you. It's uh, the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. Um, now, if, if you don't know who, who Charles Spurgeon is, uh, he would later become the greatest preacher of the, the 19th century. Uh, but this story uh, starts when he's a, a teenager, where he's struggling to be a Christian. And despite his Christian upbringing and his own efforts of prayer and, and Bible reading, he still retained a deep sense of needing to be delivered. And in his struggle, he gets to this one Sunday and he really wants to go to church. But there was a massive snowstorm and he could only get as far as this little primitive Methodist chapel just down the street and down a lane. And he had to jump in there to, to find shelter from the storm. And the chapel was virtually empty. 
as most of the congregation, including the minister, couldn't get there because of the snow. So, in this situation, a layman stepped into the pulpit and began to preach. His text was Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. And this man, unprepared and inexperienced, found one point to expound and did so with a hundred variations. He says, You know, you don't have to lift a finger to look. You don't have to make a thousand pounds a year in order to look. You don't have to have anything true about you to look. You don't have to be good or bad to look. Then he said, don't look to yourselves. There's no hope there. And then finally he lifted his voice and he put the words of Isaiah 45.22 into the mouth of Jesus. And he said, look to me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look to me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look to me. I've died and I'm buried. Look to me. I am risen. I am ascended. And I'm going to the right hand of the Father. Look to me. And then the lay preacher looked out. There's only about three or four people in the chapel. And he looked out and he saw Spurgeon. And he said, young man, you look miserable. And you're going to be miserable. You are going to be miserable in life and death if you don't obey my text. At that moment, and this is Spurgeon's words, I was ready to have someone tell me to do 50 things in order to get salvation. But he suddenly realised, I just have to look. I no sooner saw whom I was to believe that I understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. Upon his return home, his appearance caused his mother to exclaim, something wonderful has happened to you. Spurgeon's testimony gives me an understanding of what it looks like to be born from above, born again. It's when your mother can see that something wonderful has happened to you. Others sense it. They feel spiritually uplifted by spending time with you. On the flip side, if you secretly feel good about your own religiosity and and morality, well, it's probably not as secret as you think because we do give glimpses uh, of our spiritual condition when we we make judgments on others, uh, when we exercise control over them, uh, when we snub one person in favour of another. You get the point, don't you? Even though we look to Jesus for salvation, we fool ourselves that our own righteousness somehow makes a difference. And that's something we need to repent about. We need to look to Jesus. I've got one final slide. John would have us understand 
just as everyone is a villain and a victim, that Jesus is both judge and saviour. He takes the punishment for every villain that looks to him. He rescues every victim that looks to him. But you've got to look. I'd like to close with a, with a prayer of repentance, if I may, and I've, and I've borrowed this from Tim Keller, uh, and, and I'd invite you, as I read this out, to, to make this your own prayer. So let's pray. Father, I not only repent for all the bad things I've done, I repent for all the bad reasons I did all my good things. All the good things I've done, I've been doing to control you, or to feel good about myself, or to get other people to look at me. I've done bad things and even the good things I've done for bad reasons, and therefore I am spiritually bankrupt. I'm totally spiritually bankrupt. I admit my total, absolute helplessness, moral bankruptcy, and in need for sheer grace. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, when I stumble, as I know I will, please help me to always keep looking to Jesus. Amen. This sermon is now going to slide seamlessly into communion. Uh, so I'll ask my assistants to come up. Thank you very much, Alan and, and Janet. And... Um, and as they're uh, removing the, the cloth and, uh, and getting ready down here, I, I just want to continue a little bit telling you about the Nicodemus story because he is mentioned another couple of times, both in chapter 7 of John and again in, in chapter 19. And, and I want to read to you chapter 19, 38 to 42. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of it, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb of which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, we don't know when Jesus chose to put his trust in Jesus. John just doesn't tell us. Yet here he is publicly showing his allegiance to Jesus with another previously secret Christian. What a time to go public when your hero is dead. It's a time when reason for doubt would be at its absolute peak. Yet here are these two men. I believe they're already empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I, I believe that what they're doing is showing their trust that Jesus is going to complete what he had said and rebuild the temple in three days. How else would they be emboldened to act? In the Lord's Supper, 
we are provided the opportunity. I'll just grab a, one of those as well. We're provided the opportunity to declare our trust in Jesus as we partake of the bread and the juice as representative of Jesus' body and blood that he freely gave to us so we might have eternal life in him. So I'd like to invite you now to come on up to join in celebrating the Lord's Supper. If you're a visitor and a follower of Christ, please, please join with us to celebrate with us. Please eat the, when you come up, please take the, the elements back to your seat. Feel free to eat the, the cracker at your leisure, but just hold on to the cup and we'll drink together. So please come down.